0: the secular people watching that commercial that's the message they got that the christian duty if we're going to be like jesus is not to be all judgy and identify sin and and call people to repentance it's just to come alongside people and wash their feet and that's how we tell them about jesus (laughs)
1: Welcome to the Stand Firm podcast. We are recording this episode on Tuesday, February 13th, 2024. I'm Nick Lannan of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here, as always, with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today?
0: Excellent. Thank you. Yeah, great, Nick. Thanks.
1: I'm recording this episode in the basement of the parishioner who is hosting our Shrove Tuesday pancake supper. Are you all eating pancakes tonight?
0: My wife is. I'm sick. Oh, so wow. I'm gonna I'm gonna stay home and my wife is gonna take all of our children to eat the pancakes. Yeah. That, yeah.
2: I'm not sick, but we are having we're having the pancakes. We're also having the pancakes, the blueberry pancakes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Has any feast been more observed than Shrove Tuesday pancake supper? Oh. <laughs>
2: Ours is actually a fundraiser too. We're, we're, we're raising money for a new projector. The youth group is raising money for a new projector in the in our fellowship hall because it's not doesn't have whatever lumens are. I guess that's like wattage. Um, Magic to be seen during to be seen during the day. <laughs> yeah, so it's yeah. not because we have all these light. We have all these. It's a wonderful, beautiful building. It has all these windows, but it's too bright. So we're getting. Um, we're trying to up the lumens. So, <laughs> so we'll see. Pretty eat expensive pancakes, pancakes for lumens. <laughs> That's right.
1: That's right. Well, we thought we'd do a little sort of sort of a modified mailbag this week. We have one question sent directly to the mailbag and the others are sort of open discussions happening online such that they might as well have been mailbag questions. And just for the record, I'm finished trying to predict how long we'll spend discussing a certain topic. So I'll just say that we have we have planned three potential topics on the docket for today. A listener asked us each to describe How we came to our views on women's ordination. Uh, We thought we'd react a little bit to the latest he gets us Super Bowl ad and maybe a little bit to the reaction to the ad. And then if there's time, weigh in on the Elizabeth Elliott discourse that has been raging through the internet last week. Uh, So Matt, I believe it was your comment on a recent episode that generated this first question to the mailbag. You said that you'd changed your view on the ordination of women, how'd that happen?
0: You you tell your story, and then JD and I can share ours. Okay, sure. Yeah, um, there there are two basic reasons why someone comes to be in favor of women's ordination. One one is if you adopt a a kind of trajectory position where you see liberation happening in the New Testament, and then you say, well, any kind of hierarchy we see there just reflects cultural norms and and those are all going to ebb and uh, fall away ultimately so even though yes paul says women shouldn't speak in church or have authority over men that's just that's a that's a cultural it's a vestige of cultural patriarchy that's going to ebb away and so by now of course the gospel means that women could do all they want i was never that kind of person i still <laughs> I, I when i when i favored women's ordination i i took kind of a john stop position which was that that the, the headship principle is a biblical principle that lasts all throughout history so you 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 can't have a female taking for example the ultimate the head the head role in a parish that always has to be a male to maintain the headship principle but you could have a female ordained even to the presbyterate so long that she's under the headship of a male rector and i thought that preserved the biblical view and enable uh, of, of headship and enabled uh women's did children. you make
2: did you make that argument while you were in virginia i mean that was what you that's what you took into because that yeah. would have been unpopular yeah. when you were in virginia
0: wouldn't it yeah and i we i held that after in you mean in seminary yeah uh yeah i, I held that in seminary and I took, I took that away from seminary as well so now i and i think i mean i think a good number of people still hold that who who are for women's ordination and i think that's a a, as as opposed to the trajectory view i think it's a much more we can debate with people who hold the john Stott view because we have we both hold the same understanding of what the scriptures are um and there's a a common basis for an argument so what happened to me though is after you know after the, the homosexuality debate broke out i i did a thorough i said i you know i need to rethink the way i'm I'm reading through the scriptures because I'm seeing how my friends and uh, people I've known in the Episcopal church are just be- being swept away by this thing. And I, and in particular, people were saying at the time, well, of course this is going to have this happen because women's ordination happened. And I, I don't know that I, I still don't know that I buy that argument because I think if you hold the John Stop position, it's not necessary that you're going to necessarily go to the LGBTQ being open to that. But anyway, I, I, uh, I, but it, it did cause me to re do a thoroughgoing review of my position on women's ordination. And I mean, I'd never really done the, quote unquote, done the work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when I did the work on 1 Timothy 3 mm-hmm. and on the clearly uh, masculine emphasis there on the qualifications for an overseer, um, and in the New Testament, the work for overseer and the work for presbyter are interchangeable. So... We're talking in First Timothy three about the presbyter as well uh, as an overseer. I came out of that study thinking this Paul's laying out say, laying out qualifications that can only be met by by a male, by a man, the husband of one wife, father. And his children are well behaved, and then I and then you know, couple that with the context uh, in First Timothy coming out of is it 1 a First Timothy two or First Timothy one where, where I don't permit a a woman to hold authority or the women should not hold authority or, or, or a position of a authority for man. I thought, well, this is a shut and dry case. I mean, for, for some reason. And I didn't know at the time why Paul is limiting, limiting the office of presbyter slash overseer to, to men. And I have been wrong and seeing that as a, as a kind of sexless office um, as time's gone on. I, I, it makes more, of course, now, now it makes to me just, much more sense when you when you see how all creation has been ordered in a in a sexed way right so there, there are things that men should do that women shouldn't and things that women should do that men should uh, shouldn't and i think the presbyter is one of those things that men should do that women that, w- that women shouldn't and in particular in the context of a congregation i don't believe in the roman catholic view of uh the the, the priest. Standing a persona Christ he's he's the, act, the actual Jesus for the congregation. but I do think there's a typology at work there when you have a male pastor of the congregation, there is a picture there of Christ as the husband of the bride that gets distorted and and interrupted when you have when you have a female acting in that role and and, and every presbyter could be a rector, so I don't anymore subscribe to the John Stott view of some artificially limiting the role of a presbyter to just being a, an assistant. So anyway, that's, that's the, probably too much, probably much more than the, <laughs> I should have told, but that, that was my change.
1: You left out a third category of person, which I think I fall into. And I, w- I won't take very long here, which is just somebody who grew up in the Episcopal church, such that women's ordination was just in the water and completely and utterly assumed and that's where I was. And so I never even thought to question it until I came into the ACNA. You know, I I served in Episcopal diocese, like the Diocese of Newark, where 90% of my colleagues were either women or homosexual men. Like that, that was just what an Episcopal minister was in my experience. And so it wasn't really until I found myself joining a church that had you know, as we've discussed over the last several weeks, at least theoretically dual integrities that I had to actually sit down. And I think like you did, Matt, really devote myself to some study about, you know, I really need to not just drink whatever the new water is, but really read the scriptures and find out for myself. And as you said, you know, starting in Genesis 1 and 2, following to Genesis 3, and then finally reading the the commandments for eldership, the qualifications in the New Testament in light of the creation order that The Lord puts in place from the very beginning um, it just as you said it's a it's an open and shut case that the role of elder of course um, as you said Paul doesn't make any kind of distinction between rector and assistant rector he's he's talking about headship in the church and he says in the same way the, the husband is the head of the wife and Christ is the head of the church A man needs to fill that role in a local church. And once I actually, and this is sort of embarrassing to admit, because I'd been ordained for a number of years before I sat down and decided to really study this issue. But once I really studied it and, you know, followed the footnotes, which is really what gets you. If you read egalitarian scholarship, it sounds really good until you actually read the references that they reference. And then their arguments just completely fall apart in really an embarrassing way. And I found myself just unable to even, in the same way that I'd never questioned the existence of female presbyters before, I was now completely unable to even rationally have an argument with myself that the presbyterate wasn't to be exclusively male.
2: Mm. Well, our trajectories are somewhat similar, uh, Nick, since we've been walking Together in seminary, basically. Um, but really, for me, it, it began in earnest when I went overseas and did my uh, doctoral work because over there we were watching the church here get um, rent asunder. Over the question of you know homosexuality and and same sex uh, blessings and things, and so part of my deep dive, even though I was studying justification of my faith in 20th century Lutheran theology, was simultaneously trying to figure out and read everything I could about whether or not this was actually the fight that we had to have. You know, I mean, I was pretty convinced that it was, but I wanted to be—I uh, knew I needed to be fully convinced in order to you know make the stances that I was going to need to make and so forth. And in the midst of that, began to read um, you know, the question of why why would God, if God's good and he's limiting um marriage in particular to a man and a woman, why, why is he doing that? You know, what what's the problem with same-sex marriage? Why can't love, quote unquote, be love? And over the over the years, also at the same time being further married myself, um, you know, just became more and more convinced that the the enfleshed sort of ontological sex differentiation was not just a sort of a Gnostic ancillary to our created being, but was actually constitutive of what it meant to be human. Yeah. Um, and the denial of that was um, well, was essentially sort of neo-Gnosticism, which in part was why, you know, the male-female distinction was so such an important one to uphold, why marriage was a resolution, reconciliation of the of the image of God, why, you know, and so on and so forth. We talked about this. And so then you know but we got back in the Episcopal Church and you know Nick you and I were serving together and it seemed at the, at the point even though that was continuing to grow you know we had bigger fish to fry as it yeah. were you know because it was um like you said there was seemed to be some more glaring errors particularly when as we've noted as you noted Matt there are John for lack of better words stop rule people who believe in women's ordination who were very very intent on the exegesis and upheld the authority of scripture and were sort of allies uh, and, and remain so in many ways and so you know, I kind of shelved that like you did, Nick, until leaving the Episcopal Church and actually having to take a deep breath. And Laz and I had a couple of months between that and when we joined the ACNA to really consider what we really believed. And so like you, you know, I did a little bit more reading, a little bit more uh, in-depth study and really came to the conclusion for me that it. I got pushed back into it because I didn't realize, and this was just my own naivete, that <clears throat> the arguments for women in the ordained uh, ministry would spill over to sort of a functionary role within the life of the family. And when that began to happen, and I began to see that, the mother and father um, began to be sort of interchangeable functionaries within this sort of radically egalitarian, I'm not saying all egalitarians say that, structure of the family. And you began to see um, sort of the the clear challenges and roles and responsibilities, particular as a man, as a husband, and and then as a father, um, being questioned as to whether or not that was even appropriate, meet and right. So to, you know, to tell me, that began to sort of really clarify how serious and important this issue was. And so, you know, we're in the ACNA, we said it before, we understand the compromise, you know, I appreciate that there are People who would defend and uphold and and swear to you know take an oath about the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency yeah. and inspiration and all the things who disagree. That being said, I find it particularly in the level of headship in the home and in the church, uh, confusing imagery. Like you said, Matt, I think it, it clouds some of the clear challenges and responsibilities that both men and women have within the home and then by extension the family of God. And so I um I'm grateful that there's a dual black we talked about black better a dual integrity. But I do think that um yeah, I mean it's it's been a it's been a journey. You know, there's a there's an essay actually on the Trinity School for Ministry website by the late Rod Whitaker, which I commend to anyone. We could link it in the show notes if I knew how to do that, um, which is called How After Sixteen Years of Exegesis I Changed My Mind on Women's Ordination. And it's really a fascinating journey of sort of his position from kind of you know, in the water, to ultimately he, um, I, th- I believe he ended up in the REC at the end of he his did. life. Yeah. And it was in part because of this question. And it's, it was compelling. It was really mapped onto my um, experience in many ways, with the huge caveat that I'm, I'm still happy to be in the ACNA, and I'm not interested in, you know, picketing or kicking, throwing tables or whatever. But I am grateful for the the freedoms that have been established uh, for this continuing wealth dialogue. Really.
1: So he gets us his back, uh, new and improved, <laughs> although maybe we wouldn't say improved. The The spot that everyone's talking about is the foot washing one. What were your thoughts upon seeing it? I don't know if you saw it live. I saw the second half of it live. I was sort of my attention was drawn to it by somebody who was eating a chicken wing next to me. Like, hey, you got to see this. Um, so I sort of I, I didn't see the full thing until after the football game itself and then obviously i've been sort of following along with the reaction to it et cetera. it doesn't seem like very many people like it but some
0: some do what do you guys think of this new foot washing ad uh, yeah i saw it live i was all of my children were gone and ann was gone to a super bowl party for the church that i was i decided not to go to so i was yeah, watching no super
1: bowl party no shrove tuesday you're like wow did you did you uh
0: I'm I'm a confirmed... through a through a goalpost like those people did.
2: <laughs> yeah. least, you know? Oh my
0: gosh, I'm a confirmed introvert, so I I I avoid I avoid parties where I might have to make small talk. So, so. anyway, the, the, but I saw it it was going on, and I and I, I thought, oh no, no mm. no no no, because you know if you remember the, the the ad features people who seem to be in more conservative Christian. Uh, character washing the feet of of those who the left, the, the the ideological and theological left have crowned as the chief victims, right? So so the, the two that stand out of course in everyone's mind is the anti-abortion protester washing the feet of the woman who's at the abortion clinic. And then um and then the last I think the last scene was the was the homosexual uh man on the beach being having his feet washed by a priest. And the thrust of the ad seems pretty obvious to me, and I think it probably is obvious to most of those who see it as a, as a bad thing, is that expressions of quote-unquote love or expressions of quote-unquote kindness uh, to people who are involved in, in these areas is the Christian duty to what Jesus would have done. Jesus would have wash the feet of a woman who is going to have an abortion or who who'd come out after after the abortion because uh because he gets us he he understands our needs and he is there to meet them and and so uh at the end of the day jesus doesn't teach hate that was the that was the last that was the 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 slogan is flashing the screen at the end of the at the end of the commercial or the end of the ad and the implication being of course that if you're not willing to do the foot washing for the person who's in active rebellion against God, then you are not like Jesus and you're hating people. And I thought that it was kind of interesting because I thought that the, the message of the commercial, the ad really kind of dovetailed pretty well with Alistair Begg's sermon on on the prodigal son, where he he, he made a lot of category confusions. The most egregious category confusion was, was the idea that the son who has come out as trans or the grandson to come out as trans and is having a trans wedding, the Christian, to love the grandson, the Christian grandmother has to go to that thing and give her, give a present or else, you know, she's being the older brother in the lost son parable. And of course the problem is with, with that idea that the whole parable is about repentance and the, and the fact that the, the younger son, the younger brother, had been in the far country, but had come back, and wanted to come back to the father's house. And the father had, and the, and the, seeing him from a long way off, went and embraced him and welcomed him back in as his son because he'd come back penitently. Um, well, and, same thing in with no
1: case are we the father in that parable. Any- no, 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 no. I
0: mean, <laughs> the problem, the problem with the, the, problem with the son in the, the in the parable is that he has he he has requirements for God for, for people that God doesn't. The, the the requirement that God has is that you trust in His Son Jesus and you turn from your and you you confess your sin right. That's what He has, but the older brother had all other <laughs> additional requirements right. Um, so it seems like that the, the this this commercial series is making the same kind of point that yeah Jesus just accepts everybody as they are that there's there's no there's no requirement that there's any kind of repentance or penitent uh, or, or confession of sin. Um, and, and that if, uh, if you, if you think that, that you need to, um, ask those people involved in these various ways of life to repent and, and confess their sins, well, you're, you're just, you're, you're being a hater. You're not, you're, you're, teaching hate. You're, you're, you're not, you're not aligning yourself, aligning yourself with Jesus. Now, I know that the commercials defenders have all kinds of reasons why they say that, oh, no, no, that's not what the message, what the message was, but I guarantee you that. The secular people watching that commercial, that's the message they got, that the Christian duty, if we're going to be like Jesus, is not to be all judgy and identify right. and, and call people to repentance. It's just to come alongside people and wash their feet. And that's how we tell them about Jesus.
1: And for the record, that's what they already believe. And so right. th- this is not the end of the world. We're not like we need to burn down. He gets us, you know, like this just sort of lame because it's just reinforcing what the choir already believes.
2: Yeah, I mean, but that was the right kind of that was the right kind of Jesus. You know, that was the type of Jesus that could come to your New York Times, uh, you know, book signing party or whatever, and get a byline in the Atlantic. Because, of course, if that's what a Christian is, that's the way it should be. And so, you know, I, I couldn't help I couldn't help as I was reflecting on it, though, think that it really mirrors kind of the what Colin Podmore, who's a Church of England um, commentator theologian, wrote of the um, what he called the baptismal revolution. In the Episcopal Church, you know, if you remember back in like the 2009 and 10, when they were making the argument that baptism was simply an initiatory rite, not didn't have anything to do with, um, or at least repentance and kind of um, self-sacrifice, at least with respect to sin, you know, sort of obvious sins, um, should not be a hindrance towards, um, should not be uh, part of the, the, the baptism discussion even. And, you know, I remember I was overseas reading this uh, and watching this discussion going on, and I couldn't help but think that that was the same rationale. It's like, a, you know, that there was this sort of initiation by love, you know, meaning affirmation, and that that was somehow the, the true meaning of, of Christian piety. And, you know, it's just the same. It's the same. It's the second verse, same as the first, you know, I mean, it's like, it's not Christian love without repentance is, um, you know, eviscerates the cross. I mean, that's just what, you know, with if, if, if love being the law, if that could bring righteousness, then Christ died for nothing, you know? So, I mean, this is where we have this, um, this empty symbolism. And, you know, I think, I forget who said it online. It wasn't someone that I recognized, but I agreed with it and said that this is, this is just, like you said, Nick, exactly what the people, like this didn't move the dial one way or the other. Like, if you already thought that, then you were like, well, at least someone is saying what's really true about um, something I don't believe in anyway. And if you didn't think that, then you just like we say, well, we've heard this before and we continue to reject it. And unfortunately, you know, just a, a lot of money. I mean, but you know, there's a lot of random ads that I thought were sure. wasted money, except for that Dunkin' Donuts um, <laughs> ad. That was the best. That, was I would, that that could have been spent three times. That would have still been worth it. But um, <laughs> but this one, on the other hand, I think was was a little bit of a waste.
1: Well, I feel like um, Samuel Say diagnosed it in a way that I thought was pretty accurate when he said that he gets us is not trying to get you to worship Jesus, that he gets us Jesus worships you. Yeah. And I felt like that was a really good and succinct way to characterize their misunderstanding of who Jesus really is. He's not yeah. almighty King who will come to judge the world. He's like he used to, to, be in the early nineties. He was your homeboy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, He does almighty get us. Christ. He does get us, but I, I, I kind of, I think that's, not a good thing for people who are impenitent right the whole the whole the whole point of what jesus is saying in mark 7 and in matthew 15 where he's talking in this engagement with the pharisees about what goes into the body versus what comes out of the mouth yeah he says well look the, the problem the human problem is that out of the heart comes all kinds of evil sexual immorality murder theft, greed, all of that comes from the human heart. And that's what makes you unclean. So yeah, Jesus got us. (laughs) Just what makes us unclean. (laughs) Exactly. And that's, that's actually, actually why he came to save us from who we are uh, or who we become because of sin and to, and to rescue us out of that.
1: Well, finally, we thought we might take a stab at some Elizabeth Elliot discourse. Um, Elizabeth Elliot famously lost her husband to a martyrdom. And there was a recent, I guess it was a recent article that sort of kicked off the discussion about her that somebody, and I don't know the details, so I may well get this wrong. You guys can correct me, but somebody who was a sort of kind of in a deconstructing mode was admitting in the article that she used to love Elizabeth Elliot, but when she learned more about Her private life, especially her third marriage, which was perhaps not as happy as her first two, she realized that what Elizabeth Elliot taught, i.e. complementarianism, was really just a vestige of her need to be a pawn of the patriarchy. And so now we have to retcon Elizabeth Elliot all these years later and reject her teaching because of not actually anything that we know, but something that we assume about what her private life was like. I know Anne wrote about this this week, Matt. What light does this shed on our ability to deal with teachers, whether they are alive now or not? How can we separate the life from the teaching?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, because that's what that, the, whether or not, and I have some ideas, opinions about that, but whether or not the article that you're referring to by, by Liz Charlotte Grant is her name. Thank you. Um, whether that's um, an accurate portrayal of her third marriage or not, that has no bearing whatsoever on whether the ideas that he that she articulated were correct. That uh, and and that seems to be that seems to be an endemic incapacity on the part of a lot of people to think to make that distinction. So so Elizabeth Elliot, and and uh, Miss Grant's view, Mrs. Grant. Well, I don't know if she's married or not. no. She is married. She has. A, she said so she's happily, progressively married or something. That's like, right. Yeah, so now happy galaxy. That sounds fun. Um, <laughs> right, right. She sounds like a great, fun person to be with. Um, so the, the, she had been someone who uh, Grant despised because as a teenager she'd read her and she felt like her sexuality was suppressed and her she was harmed and all the all the words that the. Uh, abuse grievance grifters use she uses in, the, in this to describe how she how she was affected by Elliot's writings um, but then you know she read some new biographies that have come out that have shown that Elliot was herself abused by her her third husband and her second husband wasn't so great either um, and that that's what changed her view of Elliot so that she could see her as a victim and have some compassion for her um, and also then use her as as a way of dismantling the patriarchy, right? showing how mm-hmm. how the, the, the chief the chief spokeswoman for the patriarchy was, in fact, being harmed and abused by the patriarch. Now, since then, since this letter came out, there's been a lot of response, react reaction to it. And uh, some people who knew. Elliot and her family have said that's this is a, this is not these biographies that this person's reading and, and, the, and the article itself do not reflect at all the way that we understood her marriage and and that even she expressed herself to us about her marriage there's an there's an example there's an illustration or there's a there's a, an account in the article about her family taking her away from her husband and keeping her in a secret location until you know her husband's Shaped up or something, and and then, um, but but even in the article it says, well, but she wanted to go back, and of course, that's the Stockholm syndrome or something. we at work, according to the to the author, but uh, but there's some holes in the there's a some some pretty glaring holes in the account. So I'm not, I, I'm not persuaded that that Elizabeth Elliot was abused. She it may have been a, a controlling situation, um, may well have been, but. All that goes to show is that you can have a you can either have a bad head or a good head. It doesn't say that headship or the, the question of it doesn't say anything about the question of complementarianism or patriarchy. All it says is that uh, yeah, if if um, even if if patriarchy is true, which I think it is, or, or complementarianism is, is true, yeah, you can have a bad you can have a bad manifestation of it if you if you're if you're a bad husband and a bad father, a bad man, then things don't go well for those who you're supposed to lead, but. Uh, from our perspective, you you can't undo the difference between the sexes. You can't undo the the inherent God built, God created differentiation between male and female. So even in so called egalitarian marriages, you have a head. Yeah, you have a head. He's just he's just he's just not taking his responsibility correctly. That's right. He's 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 abdicating, and so that's also a, And I I would say that's just as abusive i mean the, the 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 men who are silent and drinking their soy and 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 letting and letting their women go around and their, their wives go around and embarrass themselves really in a lot of the things they say online that's abuse the women who are in this marriage may not know but that is it's abuse it's a, it's a husband refusing to take responsibility for his household and for his for his marriage uh, maybe jd has more to add here but i i just i, I thought the article was it was a uh, a travesty i thought it was a, the use of a woman who's dead to forward a godless theology and i think that the people who forwarded this or, or retweeted this should be ashamed of themselves i know some of them and it was very really disappointing to see them putting this forward as if it was a, some kind of mm-hmm. uh, you know good and honest critique of elliot's life yeah
2: i mean i don't disagree with many of that. Um, and I think that in in addition, you know, the presumption to pull back the curtain on someone's marriage, or specifically a long live lived one um, and make these assumptions um, about what was, what was truly going on, you know, I think is a very tenuous position to take. And even if, as you said, there was challenges, even if it was prim- primarily a challenge from his perspective to her, there's still is something beautiful in the midst of that. You know, there was, there was fidelity. There was, um, there was a um, hope for, you know, the eschaton. There was a recognition of self-sacrifice and, and, you know, and a, and a higher commitment. And um, again, that is not a justification in any way to, as people will throw out immediately for people to stay in some sort of, you know, physically abusive or legitimately harmful marriage. But at the same time, I agree with you. If by default, a position that Elizabeth Elliot held, you know, sort of traditional hierarchical biblical patriarchy, for lack of a better word, is wrong at every level. Well, then there's no possible way to see anything of value in, in her long marriages you know, whether there had been this, these sort of rumors or innuendos or not. I mean, it just it would have been by default. Cause even if it had been, even if she had come out and said, well, everything's fine and it's great, they would have said, well, that's just, like you said, the Stockholm syndrome that, you know, of course you're going to say that because you've been brainwashed and you drink the Kool Aid and so on and so forth. And so I don't know. I think it was, um, for all the reasons you mentioned, I think it was a sad sort of besmirching of a, the, the memory of someone. And I thought it was interesting that the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, I didn't know there was such a thing, was sort of pushing back and publishing all of these pictures of them, you know, her and her, her last husband smiling and, you know, having vacations and things and sort of pushing back against the narrative. But, but it, was, um, it was just a further indication of the divide between people who have resolutely decided that there's nothing redeemable. About, for lack of a better word, the traditional position on this, and therefore, no stone or no memory will be left unturned until it is, um, you know, eradicated. And I think this is, um, you know, it was just it was difficult to, to read the comments and watch the dialogue on on X, I guess we call it now, uh, because it was just so rancorous and dripping with contempt. It was really more harrowing than anything else to just see that these are the stakes. This this is this is where we are. These are the Battle lines. I don't want to say battle lines, but these are, This is how entrenched the two sides seem to be.
1: Well, they acted like they were a Scooby-Doo character whipping the mask off of complementarianism and saying, See, there's there's fraught marriages under here. We told you so. And not only are we not promised that our biblical complementarian marriages will be happy. We are, in fact, promised that there will be enmity between man and woman, husband and wife. Obviously, we pray that that will be and trust that it will be redeemed and be in the process of being redeemed even in this life. But to point at at any relationship and say there's hurt, there's sadness, there's anger, there's even rancor or hatred, that's what we expect as sinners in a sinful world it's the miracle when that's overcome that we can (laughs) point to and celebrate
0: yeah but this is you know this is part of the strategy though that that, that i think you know as jd mentioned this is the strategy is to link abuse in people's minds with complementarian theology and and so and so that, that theology is itself inherently abusive it's not just that people might abuse who are complementarians it's just that all it is in itself an abuse system now, if in right. you and I, uh, all three of us have been in the Episcopal Church, which is—it's hard to find. Think of a more uh, entrenched egalitarian system than the Episcopal Church, but it's also hard to think of a more dysfunctional, abusive—the yeah. darkness and the rot underneath the floorboards. Of the episcopal church has just has yet have yet to be brought to, brought to the surface i've seen many many horrible awful abusive things not toward children or anything like that but i'm gonna say well i mean i've heard of them but i haven't seen them but there's the episcopal church is a, a rotted corpse of a place and it's egalitarian and there's a lot of power abuse there's a lot of every kind of abuse you could think of going on there and it has been going on there so it's not but but that I wouldn't I wouldn't even say that's necessarily because I think it's linked to it but it's not because of egalitarianism it's because of sin it's because because human beings are are sinful and and no matter what system you have it's going to be there I think <laughs> I think complementarianism is a, is a is a is a better system for, for guarding against it because in insofar as you do have good men who are strong and good women who are who are strong abuse will be abuse will be attenuated in a way that it can't under an egalitarian system when everyone pretends there's not a head but there really is Mm
2: -hmm.
0: yeah and what i don't understand in this entire conversation is the idea that somehow
2: the church would be uniquely at fault in this um because you know the church is if you if you spend time if you yourself go to church you understand that it's full of at least one sinner you know and so the fact that there will be people who will abuse the grace of god we see even in the the complaints in the New Testament itself. And so there's always going to be wolves among the sheep and that's wolves among the sheep, whether it's a, you know, a, a public high school or a church or a, or a community choir or a, you know, whatever. Um, and so, so the difference is <clears throat> unlike a public school or a community choir or whatever, we actually have a standard that we can apply to the expectations of husbands and wives that does not allow for heavy-handedness and uh, abuse you know physical abuse and in fact mandates honor and worthy of respect and and protection and provision you know even down to the fact that we're not supposed to exasperate your children I mean mm-hmm. these are things that and you know now that being difficult is an understatement always <laughs> you know, impossible <laughs> but nevertheless like, you know, if anyone it, it seems like if anyone would want to to uphold those and, of course, hold them by the standard, say, look, this is, you know, because there are egregious examples of people who have fallen mightily, both men and women who have failed to live up to the expectations that they have even probably set for themselves. And that's that's sad. And and the, you know, what's done in secret is going to come to light. This is should be a harrowing reality for any Christian who's involved in this sort of duplicity. That being said. There's a hopefulness for men and women in this pattern, in this, in this structure. And it's, it's just the contempt and the disdain for it is heartbreaking. I mean, I've got you know, four little boys and two little girls that I'm looking for. And I was like, I'd love nothing more than for them to get a, a holy, godly, biblical vision of their respective created and gifted roles and responsibilities within the world, much less the, their actual families, you know, ultimately, but your God's grace. And for them to, to flourish in these roles. And you know, of course, the prospect of sin and and abuse is always going to be there, but it's no less, it's it's ideally less there than it would be in a system that that doesn't acknowledge sin, doesn't, doesn't and it is call less call out. Yeah. And so that's what that's what gets me in this whole discussion is that I'm first to say, and thank God, you know, it hasn't been the case in my own personal life thus far, but but certainly we don't need to deny that there has been abuse in various churches and, you know, to the extent that it has been called out and adjudicated and, and in fact um, prosecuted, well, then that's the reality of this simple world. And so, you know, and that's, and and it's heartbreaking. And, and, you know, again, I look at my daughters and sons for that matter and say, you know, if that happened to them, it would be a tragedy. I'd be incredibly upset, but that doesn't invalidate the, as it were, the system. It doesn't validate the hope that I have in the prayerful, the prayerful expectant hope that more often than not, the Lord is in this and in, and in these relationships. And, you know, it's just not true that every marriage, Christian marriage before, you know, 1940 or 50 or whatever was actually just sort of, you know, what is a domestic concentration camp, like Gloria Steinem called it famously, you know, or some sort of spiritually abusive forced servitude or something. It's just not the case. And and it's just a sadly cynical position. And I'm I'm sad for the people that have gotten brought to that place, whether it's been through abuse or sort of neglect or just a combination of kind of cynicism and unbelief. But we're just going to continue to resolutely reject it, you know, stand on the word and prayerfully and with great humility, accept the responsibilities that we've been given and walk forward. And, you know, I'd like to think that if I was in a, you know, if something happened to me and it was in some sort of loveless marriage, that got much more difficult than it is, and that there was, you know, some some manifestations of sin that you know were being fought, but not particularly victoriously. That I would have the fortitude and the and the patience and the strength to withstand in the same way that that I would hope Liza would too. You know, and this is just again, but I would hope to have a church, family, friends, people involved in my life praying for me, walking with me, you know, calling me to account, but ultimately expecting redemption at least hints of redemption in these various areas that is is a hope in that relation, I'm just not ready to let go.
0: One of the more profound points I thought that Carl Truman makes in Rise and Triumph of the the Self is this idea that uh, in in past generations, people have sought to figure out what reality is and then conform themselves to reality. So for the last 8,000, 10,000 years, how old do you think the earth is? Be- human beings have sought to conform their family structures their the governing governing structures to to the givens of of creation to the givens of the created order and and so because of that like you're, this is what you this is the, i thought you was really profound you're saying jd is that you know there's there's their there rules their restrictions their lines their guidelines for how uh, a husband treats his wife for how a king uh, rules his people for how a governor governs his people and those can go off people can, you can have a bad governor a bad king bad husband but there are clear li- guidelines for how he should be acting and then he can be prosecuted when he doesn't but if you pretend if you pretend that there is that those these things are given that there's there's no givens in in creation in, in the created order with regard to ma- male and female but they're all there's a kind of egalitarian equality well all the safeguards are gone you know you, it, right. because you. Got, you got to you got to pretend that you got to pretend that nature isn't nature, and that people aren't people, and that God hasn't established a, a certain order, and that necessarily breeds abuse. That necessarily um, breeds behavior that isn't able to be limited, or 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 uh, the abuse is not able to be stopped because because you've thrown the rules away. You've you've thrown away ten thousand years of, of human living under the created order.
2: Yeah. And what it does is it it highlights and exacerbates our sinful tendencies. You know, we were commanded to lay down our lives for our wives in particular, because that's where our weaknesses would lie. Like, we don't want to do that. Like, I'd rather buy a boat than send a kid to college. I would rather sleep in than have to get up and deal with a sick child. And yet I'm supposed to lay down women and children first. You know, it's like when I do my pre-marriage counseling, I was like, you know, it's like one of you is going to have to get up when the, when there's a bump in the night, who's it going to be and why, you know, and it's like, and they sort of laugh or whatever. I was like, no, this is a serious question. Like one of you is going to have to walk down the stairs with a, you know, a nine iron or whatever it is and um, say, who's there? And how are you going to flip a coin? You know, what's up? And then, you know, that just sort of highlights the absurdity of this sort of radical egalitarianism that is non-Christian. It's just frankly non-Christian. Like it does have the statement on on anything else we've talked about other than just the idea that men and women are interchangeable functionaries is a denial of created order and a neo-Gnostic scourge. And so you know that's just how it is. But in the flip side of that, and I agree with you, Matt, I've been talking about this a lot in our my rector's form at the church, because we're still sort of here in the, you know, within two hours of Charleston and mere Anglicanism, the reverberations of all of that is still sort of in the air. And I'm trying to calm people down a little bit and and also say what I think is, is true. And, you know, the flip side of that is I say, look at the sort of statistics of despair, like the increasing animosity, like stated animosity between young men and young women, you see the prevalence of, you know, both like OnlyFans on one side, and you see that like the incredible consumption of pornography on the other, primarily produced by women and consumed by men, and so on and so forth. At every metric, there is this incredible as you, said, did Nick—this uh, incredible uh, manifestation of the enmity that otherwise, without the Lord, would be between men and women. And then, and then we have this incredible message of the gospel that actually reunites and restores the very image of God in men and women this side of heaven in a way that actually brings them together, not further apart. And as they get further apart outside the church, I'm expecting and in fact have watched uh, this very point be one that has drawn couples closer together, you know, has, has re-empowered and reignited the um, sense of, of responsibility that, that fathers have had, have given peace and comfort to mothers in particular, in the age of all the anxiety about the, the mommy blogs and all these things, and if I hadn't seen the fruit in my own life, and then by extension through my ministry, I would be a little more suspicious of it, but it has been irrefutable, irrefutable, irrefutable. And I'm grateful for that. And I'll continue you know, to double down on these things because the the alternative is much dire, more dire than the possibility of abuse, even though we, we don't condone, obviously, we, like we said before, we don't, you know, it's, it's horrific when that happens, but the system itself is not the problem it's the sinful human heart and that'll be something we stand on continue to preach and teach and we'll watch people be brought to fullness and flourishing in the midst of this
1: i'm glad you got to the good news there at the end because that's really the thing is that it's easy for the constraints and guardrails of almighty god to feel like just that constraints and guardrails on us sinners, but they are the guardrails that keep us moving and pointing us toward what this Almighty God has also done, which is provide for our salvation, His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is where the only hope we have is. Okay, well, we're going to be done with our mailbag episode there. We did uh, want to remind everybody last week we invited anyone who would like to help stand firm to ACNA's Provincial Assembly this year to do so. And now we have some details to share. There will be a link on the show's post page on StandFirmInFaith.com or you can visit the website of my church Grace Anglican in Louisville which is graceanglicanlou.com click on give and then in the online giving module select send stand firm to provincial assembly from the drop down list as we said last week we want to go but stand firm is run on a shoestring and we need a little bit of help to get there we'd love
2: Can we get jerseys and like have people sponsor us you know like uh, uh, a <laughs> like we're, so
1: we're we going like... to be race cars
2: Yeah, well, you know, in a manner speaking. As long as I get to be Cole Trickle. (laughs) Shake and
1: bake. We do want to thank you for listening to Stand Firm this week. If you'd like to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us. Rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirmandfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. You know, I wanted to throw in something else here. We're basically only on Apple iTunes, and I'm getting a couple emails to the mailbag about other platforms wanting to be able to find us there. If you know how to do that, we're not that technologically savvy. Let us know if there's a simple way to expand our reach. We'd love to do that. Uh, thank you to Matt Kennedy and JD Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm.